Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Archit Guha, a host on the New Books in South Asia channel in the New Books Network. And today we have with us Professor Kasha Paprocki, who is here to discuss her book, Threatening Dystopias, the Global Politics of Climate Change Adaptation in Bangladesh, published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Kasha is an associate professor in the Department of Geography and Environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her work draws on and contributes to the political ecology of development and agrarian change with a focus on South Asia and specifically Bangladesh, where she has worked and conducted research for over 15 years. Welcome, Kasha, and thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here for this discussion with you. Yeah, and this book is so amazingly compelling. And I think um, the story behind your journey to writing the book will obviously be very fascinating to listeners listeners as well. Um, So if we can start with your journey to, you know, researching this book and and the PhD, because this is your first book as well. Um, So how did it all come about? Um, You also have your your journey as a development practitioner working with an organization that is closely kind of centered in the book. So if you can speak to to all of that, that would be great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm very happy to. Thanks for that question. Um, I, so yeah, I, Like you said, I've been working in Bangladesh for about 15 years, and I um, had originally um, been doing some research as an undergraduate student on microcredit. And um, while I was doing that, I um, met and had the opportunity to start working with this organization called Nidra Kori, which means we do it ourselves in Bengali. And Nidra Kori um, is technically an NGO, but um, it's an NGO that uh, organizes, does community organizing for a network of um, autonomous organizations of landless peasants all over Bangladesh. I hadn't been to um, on the sort of southern edge of the country, uh, bordering the Bay of Bengal. And it was really the focus of their work at that point. And they um, were doing a lot of mobilization, but they were not, they, they hadn't done a lot of research on it. And so they said, if you could do research on commercial shrimp production, that would be something that we could really use. Um, so I went to Kulna, which is a sort of state in um, southwestern Bangladesh with a movement organizer. And they sort of introduced me to several communities that had been working against aquaculture with varying degrees of success. And um, along with a colleague of mine, anthropologist Jason Kahns, who's now at the University of Texas at Austin, we did a um, uh 
a participatory study of sort of the political economy of shrimp cultivation with uh, movement members there. And that was a really important time for me to sort of learn about what was going on from the perspective of communities and activists and to understand kind of the stakes of what shrimp aquaculture was, was doing to these communities. And um, so, I mean, basically shrimp started in this region through really rampant land grabbing, which was often very violent and illegal. And it has had these really devastating ecological impacts, not to mention these really devastating social impacts. And, you know, from sort of seeing what was happening in these communities, I the question I kept coming back to is why are these development agencies continuing to promote shrimp aquaculture if it is obviously so so violent and having such negative impacts and there's so much resistance from these communities so i started going on my own to um to talk to development agencies and their offices in dhaka and in kulna the sort of capital city of the district and just asking people like why are you still you know what's what's the logic behind promoting shrimp aquaculture because it's getting investment from all the major aid agencies the world bank usaid and um, and the thing that I kept hearing them say is, well, whatever happened in the past, um, it, shrimp is the only option for this region because of climate change, because um, the impacts of climate change and sea level rise are going to make agriculture in this region completely unviable. And... Um, you know, whatever we think about shrimp, it's the only option for, for people producing in this region sort of going forward. So that was sort of where the idea of climate change uh, came from in the project. And I got really sort of stuck into unraveling um, what is this science? What's the logic of the sort of unviability of agriculture in this region? How do development agencies and natural scientists see this uh, process of climate change impacting the region? And um, is this true that, you know, shrimp aquaculture is the only viable production option for the region? Um and, and, and also I had the opportunity to do some um, archival research to understand, okay, what's the history of this way of seeing the region and um, how do the sort of historical dynamics of development also shape these dynamics? So, so that, yeah, that's sort of the long version of um, how I came to the project. And I guess I'll just, I'll, I'll conclude that by saying that I think that this sort of backdoor route into studying climate change and adaptation to climate change um, from the perspective of agrarian political economy, instead of like directly first deciding I wanted to look at climate change and then pursuing a project from that perspective. I think that that orientation really shaped the way, not only that I approached the project, but the kind of questions I asked, the the conclusions that I drew for sure. And um, I think made for a much richer study of how we understand the context of climate change and climate response in Bangladesh and uh, South Asia. It's wonderful, Kasha. Thanks so much. And um, it was great to learn about your journey, especially with Nijera Kori. Um, 
I'd, I'd like for you to speak a little bit more about that because that sounds like um, a crucial piece of, of this um, in terms of, um, you know, how you situated yourself uh, disciplinarily in, um, I believe, development sociology um, and, and then kind of um, your approach to, to these questions. Um, how did that that come out of your your interaction with um, um, you know Nigeria Kori as a nonprofit organization as an NGO actor mm-hmm. in in this space? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, at first I thought that I wanted to study the movement itself, Nigeria Kori. Um, which I'll say is is technically an NGO, um, but because it's an NGO that um, sort of organizes autonomous groups, it is uh, essentially a, a movement, a network, a network of movements, if you will. And um, you know, at first, when I when I was thinking about what would it mean to study the movement and um, sort of engaging with like what you know what's the work of social movement studies and what does it mean to contribute to a movement by studying it, um, I didn't feel like I could. Um, I didn't feel like I could contribute to the movement itself by. Um, studying it and sort of interrogating it. Not that I'm not open to sort of questioning um, their claims or or the way that they do their work or the kind of uh, positions that they take on different subjects. But I, um, I was interested in development. Um, I knew that I didn't want to be like a mainstream development practitioner. Um, and I knew that also I because of the sort of autonomy of the movement, I could not contribute to it by being part of it. And so I saw becoming an academic as an opportunity to um, kind of work alongside a movement to learn things that they couldn't necessarily learn and to sort of conduct research that might help to um substantiate claims that they were trying to make in sort of public policy debates and um, sort of helping to authorize their own kinds of um, campaigns. And um, so that's why I asked them, like, what is it that you want me to study that matters to you? And as I was, um, you know, looking at these ideas about shrimp aquaculture as a climate change adaptation strategy, I realized that there was a lot of work I could do um, as far as, you know, what we call studying up, like, you know, to get into the World Bank headquarters in, um, in Dhaka, you go through multiple gates of security officers. And, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm in Bangladesh, when I'm in Dhaka, I usually wear a sari, but you know, when I go into the World Bank headquarters in Dhaka, I'm wearing a, a blazer and sort of Western um, dress clothes. And that means that, you know, those spaces, embassy spaces, uh, conferences in Dhaka with, you know, development practitioners and government officials, those are spaces that I could access that uh, movement members couldn't access. 
And um, I felt that I could contribute to them by learning things that they couldn't necessarily learn. Um, and also it means that um, I can sort of bring their perspectives into uh, debates about the future of Bangladesh that are happening away from the communities that are being impacted by those debates and decisions. And um, that involves really reflexive research practices. Um, it involves really careful attention to ideas about objectivity and who has the right to frame these kinds of debates. Um, my own role as sort of a white uh, person from the global north. Um, so yeah, so those are the kinds of questions that I spend a lot of time thinking about. What's what's my role in relation to this movement? But I think that um, because I've been able to learn so much from them, I've let them, um, I've really solicited their sort of advice and input on um, what their needs are and how I can be most helpful. I think I've gained their trust and um, that has meant a lot for my own career as a researcher. And I like to think that um, in some ways it's, it's allowed me to give back to them as well. Um, thanks, Kasha. That was, you know, um, great to kind of get a sense of in terms of um, your your journey, especially with navigating um, these sorts of different spaces between what was going on um, in the movement, um, uh, you know, in Nigeria Kori and and these spaces that they had to kind of uh, negotiate. And and in in some senses, what you're saying is that you were an intermediary. Um, uh, one of the most powerful things about your book is also um, how you're, you know, it, it is a story about Bangladesh, um, but you're also traveling to through all of these spaces in telling the story about, um, you know, about climate change, about Kulna and Kulani Hat. Um, how did that process in terms of your method um, develop? because I found that um, really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, I would love to be, I was talking to a group of uh, PhD students recently, and they asked me a similar question about sort of how I developed the methodology for the, the study that became the book. And I wish I could say that it happened through like a ton of foresight and <laughs> really careful planning. Um, but it sort of unfolded naturally, to be honest with you. I, I knew that I was going to spend time in villages in Kulna um, with farmers and uh, day laborers. Um, and then I sort of slowly realized that I was going to need to do more research about these development projects and sort of adaptation planning processes in Kulna City and then in Dhaka, the capital. And um, increasingly I had to just sort of expand the scope and the number of sites in order to understand those dynamics. So, um, you know, I wasn't finding the, um, all of the day laborers who I anticipated wanting to interview because many of them had already left. And so I said, okay, um, where have they gone? Well, most of them have gone to Kolkata. Okay, give me their phone numbers and um, I'll go to Kolkata and I'll track them down. And 
So I, I emailed a lot of migrants in Kolkata um, in order to understand just what the, you know, the, not just the migration process, but what was happening in the villages that I wanted to understand. Um, the development agencies, you know, their presence is much bigger in Dhaka than it is in Kulna in the sites that they are planning. And so in order to understand their work, you know, I had to spend a lot of time in, in office buildings and embassies and sort of conference rooms in Dhaka in order to, to see what was happening there. And from there, I realized, you know, the story of like how the future of Bangladesh is being imagined and planned is happening pretty far beyond Bangladesh even, you know, so, so um, there are conferences in Rotterdam or in Kuala Lumpur or in Paris where people are talking about uh, the possibilities for development and adaptation in Bangladesh and the decisions that are being made in those spaces are really important to what is happening there and so I had to travel to those sites as well in order to sort of untangle these processes and I think that the result of doing of 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 it becoming this really kind of multi-sided ethnography was that I came to understand Bangladesh um, not as a sort of a, a unique site in in this sort of global you know unfolding of ideas about climate change adaptation, but as really kind of a key node in a global political economy of um, new imaginaries of what the future will look like in the time of climate change. And so I see Bangladesh as a very important site in those debates um, and one which um, we can look at in order to understand uh, what these politics will look like in a lot of different places sort of now and in the future. Um, so uh, that brings me to the question about how you've, you know, in, in the book, you've, um, argued for this almost a continuum, uh, with development and adaptation as, as regimes, right? Um, and I think it would be wonderful to, to kind of unpack that a little bit more in terms of the the history of of Bangladesh as well. Um, in in your journey as well, you mentioned, um, you know, your first uh, kind of uh, engagement with Bangladesh through microcredit. Um, that was, if we if we think about Bangladesh um, a decade or you know two decades ago, that was the story about um, Bangladesh, and now it has it's shifted to climate change and um, you know. Um, the story about um, its its increased vulnerability, or its um, so I, I wonder if you know this this continuum. If we can track both through a longer history of, of um, you know colonial and post colonial dispossession, which you do, and um, you know accumulation processes, um, but also how um, you know development. Um, is is very much tied to um, the history of independent Bangladesh um, and its and its story of being this sort of quote unquote aid lab, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, such a good question. So I um, 
You know, my trying to understand this question analytically about the relationship between adaptation and development in Bangladesh um, has been really um, difficult and fraught because on the one hand, I think that, um, and, and I heard from a lot of the people that I interviewed in Bangladesh that climate change adaptation is just a new word for what uh, a lot of, you know, agencies have been trying to do in the name, you know, of development for a really long time in Bangladesh. And on the other hand, I heard a lot of stories about how adaptation is a real kind of break from the past and um, allows for new kinds of really unprecedented interventions. And so, uh, you know, the question is, it, it is is this new is, you know, are, are these politics that we're seeing new for Bangladesh is a complex one. And um, I think it is both. I think that the sort of discourses of unprecedented crisis um, that, that allows for really new and uh, uh, much more kind of invasive imaginaries of of rethinking and re-engineering this entire region um i think that you know discourses of crisis about climate change do allow for that kind of newness on the other hand i think that um we need to understand these discourses and practices and plans really, really firmly within this longer history of development and intervention in the region. Um, and we can only understand it in some sense through um, its, its relationship with this longer history. And so, you know, Bangladesh, since it was, si since it became independent, has been seen as a kind of laboratory for experimenting with new visions in uh, in development. And so Naomi Hussein talks about this in her book, The Aid Lab, which is just a really brilliant study of the history of development in Bangladesh. Um, but there are all of these different examples of kind of experimenting with Bangladesh as this aid and development laboratory. So microcredit was sort of the earlier iteration, like Bangladesh is the place where microcredit happens and microcredit you know, at that time in, in the 90s and early 2000s was kind of the the um, the new vision for global development. But even before that, Bangladesh was also a laboratory for sort of population control measures and for a lot of other really um, experimental kinds of development practice um, that have had really disastrous consequences for Bangladesh. And the this idea of it being a kind of development laboratory was always contingent on the sort of related idea of it being this kind of dystopic space that had no hope or future. And so, um, you know, Henry Kissinger famously called Bangladesh a basket case. And um, the idea was that Bangladeshis are not capable of self-determination in planning uh, for their development or their future because it is such a, you know, a, a, a disastrous basket case. And therefore, it's available for experimentation with all different kinds of, of development interventions. 
And this idea of Bangladesh as this kind of dystopic basket case, I found as I sort of um, tiptoed into the archive. I mean, I, I, I'm not trained as a historian, but I think that doing research in archives is just like so magical. <laughs> and I was, I was um, just like shocked and um, thrilled to find these historical patterns coming so clearly out of the archives about how colonial administrators also saw Bangladesh as this really dystopic space. And, you know, it's interesting, a lot of that was related to like Bangladesh and the Shunderbans in particular, which is sort of what made up um, historically this region of Kulna where I've been doing ethnographic research. The Shunderbans were the primary shipping route to Kolkata when Kolkata was the capital of the Raj. And um, the Shunderbans are always shifting. The, the waterways are shifting, the land is shifting, the people are moving. And so it really sort of defied this, this colonial control. And in a very like material practical sense, it made it really difficult for the British to get their ships through. And so you see all of these like crazy stories and narratives and sort of fictitious accounts of the Shunderbans as this terrible space full of tigers and disease um, that was, you know, in need of, of control by British administrators. So there were all sorts of really exceptional plans for controlling the landscape through both um, kind of new technologies in um, engineering physical embankments and also in engineering um, very special land control systems that would facilitate sort of taking control over this region. And so this, these ideas and also the physical interventions that they began implementing um, during the colonial period provide a really, really important foundation for the way that climate change is impacting the region today, the way that people are able to respond to climate and other kinds of ecological change. And um, I think that, uh, you know, the sort of the lesson here is that trying to understand climate change without a clear understanding of this colonial history um, makes it impossible for us to understand like how we got where we are today and the kind of challenges that are confronted by this or indeed any other post-colonial region. Yeah, no, and and I think, you know, you um, in the book have this ethnographic vignette of um, a, a Jumindari body, right? Um, uh, landlord's house and and their sort of uh stake in in controlling um you know uh Kulna and, and and i thought that was really powerful to, to kind of see how um this history although you know we've we've kind of gone through um this discourse of you know abolition is to persists in in various ways and, and affects land holding patterns and um and labor as well right um and i wonder if you could if you could speak to that a little bit more in terms of you know um the way you saw the um you know the 
what was going on in terms of the realities of um, Kulna and Kolani Hat today um, being shaped by these these very material processes um, that created certain hierarchies and allowed for particular processes of um, accumulation and dispossession, right? You know, the way that shrimp aquaculture and sort of the, um, particularly the sort of processes through which it has taken over from the kind of agrarian political economy of rice cultivation, the way that it has um, sort of worked its way into the fabric of agrarian life is through both sort of very long historical patterns of um, labor exploitation and um, class inequality in the region, but also through sort of new predatory capital that is coming into the region. And understanding those two things together and the way that they shape um, the political economy of shrimp aquaculture and also the way that that they shape sort of the response to climate change, I think really helps to get a more nuanced understanding of um, what is what's happening there today. So um, development agencies love to say that uh, people have a choice about whether or not to farm shrimp or rice and um, that we can see that they are choosing shrimp because so many because so many villages have been taken over by shrimp. And um, when you sort of dig into what's happening, how people make these decisions and the sort of material process of trying to cultivate either shrimp or rice, you find that actually the, the these sort of um, regimes of labor and landholding really question that idea that people cultivate whatever it is that they want to cultivate. So, um, you know, there still are, are these very large landholders in the region, some of whom have held a lot of land historically, and some of whom have grabbed a lot of land coming from outside that, you know, they, they, they sort of gained control over in in different kinds of sort of um, predatory ways. And so this this one Jomi Darbari in um, one of the villages where I was working was a really interesting case because um, they, had, um, they had started cultivating shrimp um, in the 80s when the shrimp boom had started and they um, basically the shrimp that was being cultivated on their land was being cultivated by um, these sort of outside um, businessmen who they didn't think were giving them as much money as they deserved. And this entire village in Polder 23, where, where they lived, had been resisting shrimp, wanting to go back to rice and really struggling to do it. And at some point, this, the, the um, sort of descendants of these Jomidars who 
um, you know, clearly still had a lot of resources because they lived in this very large estate, but also, um, you know, they, they had gone to India and then at some point they had come back to Bangladesh and their fortunes had deteriorated, obviously, quite a bit. Um, but they still had a lot of power locally. And so um, even though, you know, for a decade or more, there were all these smallholders who had been trying to get control of their land back, um, the, these descendants had gone to the police station and then they had sort of had access to the documents and they had had enough clout with the with the local police to demand that they get control over their their land again. And that was the beginning of a movement for, you know, many different smallholders to be able to say, okay, we, we should be able to access our lands and we do want to control our land again, which had been sort of entirely taken over by, um, by these land grabbers. So the, it was interesting to know that, but then they decided we're going to keep cultivating shrimp mostly, but we're going to have a couple sort of landless people, day laborers cultivate rice just in the area around our, our um, Bari. The, the rest of the, the majority of the land in the village continued to be controlled by um, this guy who had come from Kulna, was not a local resident, had a lot of money from outside, and he had built his own sluice gate. So there are like government sluice gates in every, in every sort of hydrological unit in the region. But then he sort of broke the embankment, built his own sluice gate. And that meant that he made all the decisions about whether to flood not only his, his own land, but the land of basically everyone else in the village. And so there was no autonomy in making a decision about whether or not the land was going to be flooded for shrimp. So if, if you wanted to grow rice, you didn't ha have the ability to make that decision because this guy was making the decision for everyone that like this land is going to be flooded with salt water from the river and we are going to cultivate shrimp and whether or not it works for you that is what we're going to be doing and so the i see these two figures of you know the descendant the the descendants living in the jomidar bari and um uh, Wakil, who had his own sluice gate, as these two figures of um, different kinds of elite capital that were making decisions for the entire village about how to cultivate, and that were shaped by these like both longer historic and also contemporary patterns of um, land holding and land control that need to be understood sort of in concert with one another. Mm. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's also really important to, to understanding the story of um, the shift from rice to shrimp aquaculture, right? Rice cultivation. To, to um, so, if if you could give us a sense of how that that actually um, happened, because in part that's a story about what is going on um, on the ground, um, you know, in, in these spaces, um, like Boulder 23, but it's also, um, you know, being constructed in different ways, um, um, outside. So, and, and this, you know, gets us to, um, also the, 
you know, the, the way that you framed your your entire narrative about, um, you know, um, the question of adaptation being one that uh, functions on these two scales of imagining and then experimenting, right? Uh, which we've we've discussed a little bit about. But if you could talk about that in the context of um, the shift from rice to shrimp, that would be great. Yeah. So. You know, what's interesting about studying the use of shrimp aquaculture as a climate change adaptation strategy is that the shift to shrimp from rice started a long time before adaptation was ever on the agenda. And so in the 1980s, um, development agencies started really actively promoting a shrimp a, a shift from rice to shrimp through um, structural adjustment programs and sort of um, interventions and plans and projects for ex- export-led uh, growth in Bangladesh. Shrimp was seen as sort of the next big export commodity for for Bangladesh, and today it is um, the the second largest export after garments from Bangladesh. And um, there's a lot of resistance to this. So um, there, I, I worked in three what are called polders, which is sort of islands surrounded by these protective dikes, and. Um, one of the polders, Polder 22, has historically resisted shrimp and ha- and um, ne- never farmed shrimp and continues to farm rice today. Um, Polder 23 transitioned to shrimp and has now is basically entirely a shrimp growing um, region. And Polder 29 has sort of shifted back to rice from shrimp, which I'll talk about in a second. So. Um, in Polder 22, there was a very strong movement that resisted shrimp, and um, the movement was galvanized really by the martyrdom of one movement leader who was murdered by um, land grabbers who wanted to bring shrimp into the village. And so, uh, yeah, this woman, her name is Karunamoyi Sardar, and um, like throughout the entire region, throughout Kulna, even in villages where nobody's heard of Nijarakori, people talk about the Karunamoyi Andalon, the Karunamoyi movement. And so that, so, and, and they have a, a, a big festival every year to sort of um, commemorate and celebrate the movement and Karunamoyi. And, um, you know, that's been really important to sort of galvanizing support for maintaining agricultural production in Polder 22. In Polder 23, um, they, they, they didn't have a strong movement at the beginning. The region was taken over by shrimp aquaculturalists and um, they have not been able to return to rice from shrimp. In Polder 29, um, there's, a, there's a movement that is sort of growing in strength that has started in a couple villages and is kind of expanding over the last, I'd say maybe 10 years to regain control of the land and to um, shift from shrimp back to rice. And 
What is really, really important about that movement in Polder 29 in particular is that um, the development agencies who continue to promote shrimp in these areas where it is already being cultivated and sort of in, in, in areas where they would like to see it transitioned to, they say, um, uh, rice agriculture is not viable in the areas that have been cultivating uh, shrimp and that sea level rise makes rice growing essentially impossible. And so this is a particular imaginary of the region that says, you know, the region is going to be not only sort of ecologically devastated by um, shrimp, which is, I mean, sh shrimp requires salt water to grow. And so that means that basically after you flood the land, then nothing else can grow. And in Polder 23 in the villages where I worked, like all the trees died, um, people can't grow home gardens. And, you know, because there also isn't a lot of grass, they can't, they don't have animals to graze, they can't grow, you collect firewood and things like that. So it's just, it has all these cascading really devastating ecological impacts and the imaginary of this kind of devastated ecological space is we have to give it up and nothing else is possible and so it's okay to sort of experiment with um you know this kind of ecological devastation because there's no hope for this region well the the possibility of return is made evident by the fact that there are these villages in, in Polder 29 and a few others in the region that have been able to successfully return. It took them a long time. Um, and, and the, and it, it was very painful because um, you have to flood, depending on how long shrimp has been cultivated, the land, the salt needs to be essentially like leached from the soil through many, many monsoons in order to regain the fertility of the soil to start cultivating rice again. And so that was like a long and difficult period for the, the people in this village where I worked in Polder 29 um, to sort of, you know, stave off the, the sort of pressure to return to shrimp. And they actually had to have the, the movement in Polder 29 um, had to have like a nightly watch group where they would sort of stand at the sluice gate overnight with lattes with clubs um, to prevent anyone from coming and opening the sluice gate and flooding their land again at night. And so um, this is, you know, difficult work and it's work that you only can or will do if you really, really believe in an agrarian future for your community. Um, and the fact that they did and that they have, they put in all this work means that, um, you know, after about seven years of this sort of flushing of the salt uh, through the monsoon and not cultivating shrimp, um, that this community in Polder 29 uh, was not able to not only able to return to rice cultivation, but all of the people who had been forced to leave when during the time when they were cultivating shrimp, all of these landless laborers were able to return to participate again in agricultural production. And so the, these, you know, three different sites really kind of demonstrate 
what these competing visions of the future look like in the context of shrimp and also climate change. Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for that. That really, you know, brings to bear and illustrates that, you know, that there are these alternatives to the dystopic um, that is being constructed, right? Um, but um, it'd also be great to, to learn more about how these dystopias essentially um, are, are being made possible through particularly, you know, climate science and scientific knowledge production in concert with, um, you know, development agencies and, and um, NGOs, like you mentioned in the book. Um, so what what would what kind of um, knowledge production does that entail um, and, and what disjunctures does it create between lived realities and, um, you know, um, development planning? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this question of whether or not agriculture is viable was one that I um, realized was framed as kind of a an objective scientific fact and um, one which had sort of an unclear basis to me. And so I spent a lot of time interviewing um the scientists who are, there's just a ton of science happening, um, studies of the physical geography of the region and what is happening in the context of climate change. And so, you know, I, I decided I want to spend time interviewing these scientists and understanding what they know and what they don't know about the region and sort of how they know what they know, how they do this work and um, what that means for how planning and policy happen and how they're sort of informed by this science. And I'd say I found two things about this. Um, the the w one thing is that there's a lot of uncertainty about what is happening in the region. And um, a lot of natural scientists will say, we really don't know how to attribute the impacts of climate change to the kind of processes that we're looking at. Um, we can do some untangling of uh, climate impacts from other impacts. And to the extent that we can do that, we believe that climate change is not the primary driver of ecological change in the region. But the other thing I found is also that um, within this politics of uncertainty about what is happening, um, the sort of preconceptions about the region and its kind of dystopic future that I've just been discussing, which, you know, sort of come in from all sorts of different discursive angles. You know, there's like this long colonial history. There's the New York Times saying this is a region without a future. Um, there are, you know, Bangladeshi sort of activists and govern government agencies themselves saying, um, you know, this is a real threat that needs to be addressed, whether or not there's a future for the region. And so all of this kind of informs the way that natural scientists do their work and they often approach the region as essentially already doomed 
And so the kind of language of um, the way that that people think about the future of coastal Bangladesh is shaped by their own understandings of it being, first of all, of it being a region um, without a desirable agrarian future, and also their own understandings of agrarian futures not being desirable. And so um, I've, I, I found that the assumptions about the lack of desirable agrarian futures from scientists really informed the way that they approached their questions and um, shaped their sort of analyses of what was happening in a lot of different ways. Um, I think that the, that me so, so the, the, the result of that is sort of two specific conclusions. One is that there are some things that we know and there are some things that we don't know about what is happening, but that that gap around like what we know and we don't know is mobilized in very particular ways by development practitioners to pursue different kinds of futures. And so, um, you know, what we don't know about the possibility for agrarian futures is used by development agencies to say, we don't know if this is desirable, so we're not going to invest in it. But, um, you know, we do think that shrimp is desirable for the future and therefore we are going to invest in it. Um, it means that we don't know a lot about things like climate migration. And so, um, you know, there is so much investment in the study of climate change in Bangladesh that there is a lot more money going into the study of climate migration than there is going into the study of migration in general. And uh, that means that th these kind of assumptions about like the fact that this is going to happen and is going to have these particular kinds of effects really shapes what we know about you know, how many people are moving, why they're going to move and, and, and why they're moving right now. Um, it also shapes the planning that's happening for the physical landscape. And so um, there is a lot of money that is supporting um, like foreign engineers to plan new major infrastructural investments in um, uh, all over Bangladesh, but especially across the coastal region. And um, essentially none of that money is going into projects where uh, Bangladeshi engineers are kind of the PIs or the leaders of projects to sort of say, this is how we want to do this work. And this is, um, uh, this is the approach that we're going to take. There are a lot of really great Bangladeshi uh, engineers and planners um, but they are rarely given the opportunity to sort of lead this work. And that means that we have a limited understanding of um, the kinds of paradigms and strategies that there could be for mitigating the impacts of climate change. There's a lot of money going into building these huge, very kind of charismatic um infrastructural investments in embankments and, you know, major concrete uh, constructions. Um, there is very little investment in studying the potential of um, 
like a sort of variety of different, more indigenous strategies for managing water and sediment that a lot of local people will discuss as like potential alternatives to those major infrastructural investments. And so I think there's a lot we know, there's a lot we don't know. And um, the way that we're responding to what we know and don't know is in turn shaping the physical landscape itself. Yeah, as as someone interested in the politics of uncertainty myself, I I found that really something um, really uh, important to think with in terms of the way that um, the obfuscation of knowledge works, right? And and almost like willful ignorance in in some ways. Um, But you've also mentioned, um, you know, that there are these alternative visions that are being laid out by the community. So if you could um, speak to that a little bit more in terms of what you encountered at, you know, for example, COP23 in Bonn, and now we're at COP27 versus what's going on in terms of these communities responding to, um, you know, these these changes. And um, also, you know, if in terms of um, your work as well, what has shifted after you finished fieldwork? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, if I can take a moment just to sort of speculate on the on COP27, which is, you know, right now we're right in the middle of it. Um, I, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I'm not terribly hopeful about the, politics of um of the these sort of international agreements however i do not think that that is where we should find our hope about the future under climate change because the kinds of politics that i saw um of climate change adaptation in bangladesh suggest that agreements about how to deal with and pursue the future under climate change that take place exclusively through states, the best case scenario is pretty bad. And it looks a lot like the kinds of things that I'm that I'm talking about in Bangladesh, like lots and lots of money going into projects planned by development agencies that have this history Um, that is, you know, very unequal and is not uh, suggestive of a sort of radical potential for a liberatory future. So I think that um, where we can find more hope is in the visions of sort of community groups and activists who are attentive to these longer histories and who see their own political struggles as being embedded in broader stakes of sort of broader political movements for climate justice. So, you know, Nidra Kore does not speak the language of climate change. Um, they're sort of increasingly starting to, to think about it, but um, they don't organize around climate justice. 
they do organize for a lot of other kinds of justice. They organize for agrarian justice. They organize to sort of demand um, the delivery of the rights to which they have entitlements from the state. They organize for gender-based justice and um, against communal violence in their communities and for sort of uh, class justice, for um, the rights of um, landless peoples to access uh, common lands, which is sort of enshrined in the Bangladeshi constitution. So there are all of these campaigns for justice that uh, they pursue in communities all over Bangladesh. And I think that what my book shows is that we can only understand climate justice happening through these kinds of political movements for justice embedded in specific communities. Um, and, you know, that's not something that's going to be achieved through the COP system. Um, and so the COP system, you know, has a role to play in sort of um, pushing to mitigate emissions and sort of create a transition in um in you know our energy systems and our economic systems, but um, it is not where the sort of struggles for justice in our specific communities are happening today. And I think that the strategies that Nijar Kori is employing in um, in agrarian communities in Bangladesh are much more hopeful as far as pursuing those alternative visions of more equitable futures. Thanks, Kasha. I think that that really is, um, you know, a note for hope, but it's also one that allows us to contextualize um, how climate change works as this master narrative, right? And um, sometimes, you know, climate change working um, outside of that narrative doesn't necessarily equate to climate change denialism, uh, especially in in spaces that have longer histories of, um, you know, environmental change and ecological instabilities that, that speak to, um, you know, what is going on in the contemporary moment as well. So I, I think that's um, really, really, um, you know, something that, all of us must kind of contend with in in our own research and um so thanks so much but um i won't let you go before um kind of getting you to speak a little bit more about um what you're working on right now and and what we can possibly hope to read um of of your work in the future yeah thank you um so my sort of next project, I'd say sort of grows out of this um, this work because I'm focused on sort of the politics of expertise in climate change adaptation and also where it intersects with uh, colonial histories and decolonial movements um, for the future that responds to climate change. So I'm planning to do um, some ethnographic work with um, more sort of global experts who are kind of 
peddling their expertise on climate change uh, in in Bangladesh and elsewhere around the world, and also collaborating with um, with a historian, Devjani Bhattacharya, who works on sort of colonial histories of climate and climate response in South Asia to think about um, what, you know, decolonizing the future under climate change will look like. So that's, yeah, that's my, my future work in a nutshell. I wish that I had more to say about it, but <laughs> um, it's work that I'm really excited about and I think is really informed by um, the things that I think are most pressing coming out of this book project. No, that that sounds incredibly exciting, and and I'm sure we'll we'll all, as we've learned from setting dystopias, we'll learn a lot f- uh, from that work. And it it also sounds very um, exciting because you're you're doing this sort of collaborative work, which um, you know allows us to kind of see different perspectives um, on the same issue. So thanks so much, Kasia, for for joining us and sharing so generously of your time. Um, I certainly learned a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I hope our listeners do as well. Great, thanks. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate all of your great questions. Likewise. Likewise.